But 1 Chronicles chapter 4, when you think of 1 Chronicles chapter 4, a lot of people think about Jabez. He's one of the prominent names in the book of, or chapter 4 of 1 Chronicles. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, we find the, the uh, 12 sons of Judah mentioned by name. And then we come to the children, I believe, of Simeon. And every time you read a Bible name, or every time they named a baby, they always had a prophetical meaning, or a picture of their future in mind. For example, Joshua, or Jesus, Savior of, he shall save his people from their sins. Um, but if, when you come to 1 Chronicles chapter um, 4, you read about the descendants of Judah. And Judah, we know, was one of uh, jo Joseph's children that Isaac adopted, or Jacob adopted, rather. And Simeon, the Bible says in verse 24 of 1 Chronicles chapter 4, the sons of Simeon, now when you're reading the Bible and you read these names, there ain't nothing there. You just read right past it. But, but I believe God showed me something here. It says, the sons of Simeon were Nemuel. Hi, Nemuel. There's a good Bible name for your son right there. Jamin, much that. Jareeb, Zira, and Shaul. And then verse 32, for the sake of time, it says, And their villages were Edom, Ain, Rimon, Tochin, Asian, five cities. And verse 33 says, and you can see how I skipped a lot to try to get to the meat of it. It says in verse 33, And all the villages that were around these cities, as far as Baal, these were their dwelling places. Notice, and this is what caught me. And they maintained their genealogy. Notice that. And they maintained their genealogy. Let me just give you the Hebrew. I'll give you my version. And they kept their families together. Notice, and they kept their homes together. And then the Bible says, Meshobab... Jamalek and Josha, let's go on to verse 37 or 38, I think is up there. These mentioned by name, the reason why their names are mentioned in the Bible is because the Bible says these mentioned by name were leaders in their families and their father's house, notice this, increased greatly. Notice it doesn't say their bank accounts. It doesn't say their portfolio. It doesn't say their education. It said their father's house increased greatly. How many of you guys want a, a father's home that increases greatly? How many of you guys want a home that increases greatly? So when you read these verses, then you go to Jabez, and Jabez says, Oh, Lord God, enlarge my territory that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me. So what Jabez is praying is for this enlargement of sons and families. And notice these men mentioned by name were leaders in their family and their father's house increased greatly. And then I love verse 39. 
This speaks to us today where we're at, by the way. So they went to the entrance of Gedor, as far as the east side of the valley, to seek pasture for their flocks. Notice, and they found rich, good pasture, and the land was broad. Notice that, quiet and peaceful. For some Hamites formerly lived there. In other words, the peaceful place, the prosper place, the rich place, the place of good pasture is all because those who dwelt there before made it peaceful. Could you imagine the world that our children will inherit where there's chaos and F the police and rioting in the streets? Do you think we're leaving anything peaceful behind? For some Hamites formerly lived there. The Hamites were a peaceful people. You know who the Hamites were? Now if you go back all the way to Genesis, Hamites was Noah's son who Noah cursed. That's why theologians and, and crazy people have said the Hamites are cursed. Those are the black people. No, they're not cursed. The Bible says they were peaceful the Hamites were the descendants of Noah who were black. If you've read your Bible and you got a historical background, you got you to always go to the historical background of the Bible. I have the study Bibles that I use, and my wife recently bought me the Tony Evans study Bible. He says there, the Hamites were dark-skinned people. I don't read, read it because I don't like the translation, but I read his, I read his comments, and, and they're rich. And I was thinking, when I read this verse, I was thinking about the atmosphere that Chelot spoke about for Mother's Day. Notice the atmosphere that they left was peaceful, was prosperous. There was no fighting and infighting amongst brothers and relatives and children and families. You know, some of our own spiritual family, we can stand closer to and stand with with your own family, your own flesh and blood deserts you. Let's get on to my message. That was good, by the way. So they found rich, good pasture. Amen. How many of you guys are looking for rich, good pasture? In other words, I'm looking for a peaceful place to raise my children. Some of you say, I'm living, say it with me, I'm living in rich, good pasture. I'm sitting right now in rich, good pasture. You might not, you might live out in the middle of the boondocks somewhere, but how many of you guys know if that's God's place for you, that God's blessing on it, that's where God has caused you to dwell. I will dwell there with my children. And notice, and they kept their genealogies. And they maintained their family. I think that's one of the greatest battles today is to keeping your family together. Is that right? Am I right or am I wrong? The struggle today is to keeping, I mean, could you imagine trying to keep the church together during COVID? Everybody's all over. And pastors are struggling to keep the church together and trying to implement new ways and strategies to, to disciple people. Well, you know, everybody wants to be discipled by a pastor behind a screen. He says, and they kept their families together. I love this simple little message here this morning. 
So now let's go on to first. Why were genealogies important? Why is it important that the Bible says they kept their families together? Why is it important that all these names are mentioned in the Bible? I'm going to tell you in a minute. First Chronicles chapter 7. Now, we all know that the family of Issachar, the Bible says that, that the, uh, the family of Issachar, it, it tells us about them that Issachar uh, knew, that knew what they should do. Right? In other words, they understood the times and they knew what they should do. Why does the Bible say, and they knew what they should do? Because if you have a family and you have a following, like Pastor Mike was describing his children following him, if you got children and you got sons and you got daughters and you got a church, you ought to understand the times and know what you ought to do because somebody's got to lead. Somebody's got to lead because we're going to leave... Uh, a pasture for our families and for the future, and they have to know which direction to keep going when the world is throwing them all kinds of different roadmaps. So 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 7, why was it important for them to keep their families together? Now it wasn't just so they could have a long list of names and, you know, this is, this is my family and that was my descendant and those are my ancestors and, you know, this guy and that guy and now they're wanting to do away with all... The people in our history. First Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, or verse 4, that's part of my dyslexia there kicking in. The son of Uzi was Israel. That's a cool name right there. And the sons of Israel were Michael, Obadiah, Joel, and Isaiah. All five, all five of them, notice this, were chief men. All of them were leaders. And then the Bible says, and with them, somebody say with them, and with them by their generations, according to their father's houses, were 36,000 troops ready for war, for they had many wives and sons. Why was it important when these men had sons, multiple wives? Now, I don't recommend that today because it's wives plural. They had multiple wives, but why did these men, you, did, when you read about Solomon, the Bible says, and Solomon had peace all of his life. Why does it say that? And Solomon had peace all of his lives, but father, his David, had war after war after war. See, Solomon was out there taking, or David was out there taking land and fighting his enemies and fighting his enemies, just trying to build his house. But by the time Solomon came, the Bible says Solomon increased his, his, his homes, he increased his wives, increased his children, and he had peace. In other words, you don't want to mess with the guy that's got 700 troops behind him. So that's why when the Bible says, and they kept their genealogies, in other words, they were keeping the safety and the peace of their homes. You saw those five guys, they're, they're not boys anymore. You see those five, six men walking behind Pastor Mike? Don't swing on Pastor Mike. Because where's Anthony at? Anthony looks pretty slim and tender. Malachi too, that's why he always has a broken hand. They got a knockout punch. Now, I'm not bragging on him, I'm just telling you. I've seen 300-pound guys go down. Now, I don't condone that stuff. But you understand where the peace came from, right? You understand where the peace came down from. Now, you got to understand that in the Bible, there were bullies. There were men that would come and try, you know, in the D home, they said, if you didn't, uh, they, they see they would take your milk. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? 
In the Bible days, there was men and armies that would come and they would try to take your possessions. They would come and try to take your houses. Who was going to defend those homes if it weren't the man in those homes and the family in those homes? I just, I just feel the Spirit of God building it up. Some of you guys say, what are you doing? Are you condoling violence and your children ought to go be punching around? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Is That was their defense. Your children was your defense. Keeping your families together, keeping your genealogies together was your defense. I'm going to prove it to you in just a minute. So according to their family, their genealogy, they had 36,000 men for battle, for they had many wives and many children. Ready to fight. Ready to fight. So here's a young man by the name of Naboth. You guys remember the story? The Bible says that Naboth had a vineyard. And he lived next door to a bully. And what did the bully do? Brother Phil, help me out. The bully, Ahab, said, hey, Naboth, your, 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 your vineyard's right next to my wall. Since it's right next to my wall and I'm the king, I like your vineyard. Why don't you just name your price and I'll give it to you? And what did Naboth say? God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So this bully comes to, to Naboth and Naboth says, man, I got 15 more minutes to derail all this stuff. It's hard up here. So Naboth says, I'm not giving to you my vineyard. You ain't getting it. It's the inheritance of my fathers. Now Naboth, if he had had sons and he had had daughters, and if he had had increased his children, his children would have said, you ain't taking what is ours. But since Naboth was a single guy, didn't have any sons, didn't have any daughters, what did Ahab do? When he cried to his wife, and his wife took it from him. Now, I don't have time to go read the whole story, so read it in your Bible. It's in 1 Kings chapter 22. But this bully, Ahab, is about ready to get his own treatment delivered to him. Or going somewhere. So Naboth is dead. Ahab's chilling at the vineyard that he didn't pay for. He took it. That guy had no one to fight for him, no one to defend him. I just took it. As a matter of fact, my wife took it for him. He allied himself with another king who gave him Jezebel, and Jezebel said, he don't want to give it to you? I'll, I'll get it. So Jezebel takes it. She has Naboth killed. Naboth, there is no children, no family to come and mourn for his loss and for his death. So he's there. He's dying. They bury him. Nobody says nothing. But the Bible says a prophet came to visit Ahab. And this is where the story gets rich. So the prophet comes to Ahab, Elijah, and the word of the Lord came to him in 1 Kings 22. We don't have it on the screen. So in your Bible or in your pen, you should have brought one to church. In 1 Kings 22, verse 17, the Bible says the word of the Lord came to Elijah and the word said to the prophet, Ahab has gone to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. 
And the prophet says to Ahab, now I'm just paraphrasing, out of 1 Kings 22, because I want to get to my real message. It says, have you not murdered a man and seized his property? In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, even yours. Now, why would King Ahab do this? Why would King Ahab go and take another man's possession? Because no one could check him. No one could warn him. No one can tell him the possession of that man is the possession of the Lord. And when you touch that man's possessions, when you touch that man's children, when you touch that man's things and belongings, you are touching the very possession of God. Let me tell you, I've been touched in many ways and different forms, but I've said those that inheritance it belongs to God. And when you touch God's, you are touching his children. Ahab had no one to bring him in check. Ahab could just walk around and say, hey, I like your shoes. I like that jacket. You ever been treated like that? I like, hey, you know, I like your wife. You ever been treated like that? Ahab's about ready to get a taste of his own treatment. And this is where my message begins. And I have 11 minutes to preach this message so here's this King Ahab about ready to get some of his own treatment. First Kings chapter 20. And I don't have time to read the whole chapter. But the Bible says in First Kings 20, Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. In other words, all his children. 32 kings who were with him, with horses and chariots, and went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Watch this. And then verse 3 tells us that Ben Hadad tells that bully Ahab, your silver, your gold are mine. And notice this, your loveliest wives. He don't want the like, he don't want the pretty wives. He wants the lovely, in other words, the ones that are close to you, the ones that you would, the ones that you want. Notice your loveliest wives. Now, are you reading the Bible with me? He says, Your loveliest wives and children are mine. Watch the audacity of King Ben, 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 ben Hadad comes to, to King Ahab and says, Your loveliest wives, your children, and your silver are mine. This guy's getting some of his own treatment. Where did he learn that from? Where did King Ahab learn to go and possess, to go and take possession of Naboth's vineyard? See, someone had already tried it with him. King Ben-Hadad comes and tells Ahab, your best possessions are mine. Your loveliest wives are mine. Man, I only got one wife to protect. Can you imagine multiple? Well, which one do I give? This guy's thinking about it. I mean, you got one wife. You know, it's like, wait a minute. But this guy had multiple wives. Oh, well, I can give, well, I guess you could take those three. I don't have children with them yet. Well, could you imagine? Got one wife, and, and man, they've got to fight for her. Your silver and your gold are mine. You know, some of us, we, 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 we'd be like holding on to our silver and gold first before... And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, and all that I have are yours. Notice King Ahab is about ready to surrender his gold, his silver, his wives, and his children. 
So Ben-Hadad says, notice, but I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant, notice this, they don't want whatever is they don't want whatever's his. They, the Bible says it's specific. Whatever is pleasant in your eyes. In other words, what you value, what you value, he's going to come and bully you for it and try to take it from you. Now, if you haven't been valuing it, if you've taken your eyes off of it, you better put your eyes back on it because somebody else has got their eyes on it. I'm just going to leave it right there. The Bible said, Jensen Franklin said, you're living on acres of diamonds. You're sitting on acres of diamonds and you'll sell it and you'll give up that field and someone else will come and plow that same field, love on that same lady, provide for that, and then the acres of diamonds will be right there. So this guy's coming after what's pleasant to King Ahab's eyes. Now, he had Jezebel. And you said, well, you could have her, but, but not her. I mean, this guy's had many wives to choose from to give up. But then the Bible says, verse 7, So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent for my wives, my children, and my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. Notice that. And then I love this part in verse 11, and I'll, I'll try to give a reference to this in a minute. But basically, a prophet rose up and says, it says, don't, don't listen to him. A prophet rose, and this is probably Elisha. He says, don't listen to him. Don't consent. Tell him that you're going to prepare for war. And the Bible says that all the children of belonging to Ahab went and prepared for war against uh, uh, Ben-Hadad, and they defeated him in battle. And then the Bible says, if you continue reading the chapter, the Bible says, well, Ben-Hadad start to brag and start to say, well, yeah, they beat us up that one time because, you know, uh, they, they fought us down in the valley. But let's, let's meet them out in the, in the hills. Their God is the God of the valley and not the God of the hills. So we'll fight them on different terrain. And God says, it doesn't matter. As long as I'm with you, if you're in the valley or you're on the mountaintop, I'll still whoop them. I'll still whoop them. So then the Bible says that this Ben-Hadad is bullying King Ahab. And he's saying, I want your wives and I want your children. But not just anyone. I want the best ones. The ones that are pleasant in your eyes. I ask the man of God who are here this morning, is there something that is still pleasurable in your eyes? Is there something that brings your pleasure to behold? In other words, do you still find pleasure in the wife of your youth? Do you still find pleasure coming home? Do you still find pleasure going to your same wife? Do you still find pleasure in your children? I, don't, I didn't mean for this to be a hard message. But we ought to learn that the world is bullying us as men. The world wants our children, and it wants our wives, and it wants our homes, and it wants our inheritance. And there's got to be a fight in you that says, no, you will not have it. You will not have what is pleasant in my eyes. Because what's pleasant in my eyes is pleasant in the eyes of God. You can clap. You can say Amen. So the elders said, don't listen to him and do not agree with his demands. And then I love what King Ahab tells him. In verse 11, King Ahab tells him, tell the king, 
The one who puts on his armor should not boast like the one who takes it off. Now, I've read that verse a million times, try to figure out what. I've read commentaries, didn't get a single spiritual insight. Tell that king not to boast, not the one who puts on his armor, to boast as the one who takes it off. And I, I just, I, over a year, I've been reading that verse and come back to it. I got that verse written on one single paper. Don't got anything on it until I read it in Spanish. You know what it says in Spanish? King Ahab sent a message to Ben-Hadad. And he says, no cantes victoria antes the tiempo. Don't be singing victory before we even got into the fight. The message translation says, don't you be starting a fight if you can't finish it. In other words, you don't know if this evening when you go home, if you'll be taking off your battle. Some of you guys put on armor clothes, you get suited up for work, and every day you put it on, you take it off, you put it on, you take it off. But you don't know if tomorrow you might be taking it off. In other words, you don't know if tomorrow you might be dead. You might get fitted for battle. You might put on the armor of God, but somebody else might take it off and you might be buried in it. So he says, Dile que no cante victoria antes de su tiempo. That sounds even better. So don't be singing victory. See, a lot of times people say, oh yeah, victory. Oh, victory. Look at them. Look at them. Don't be singing victory till you face your own battles. As a matter of fact, the apostle Paul said, let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So here's this guy saying, hey, don't, don't, don't count your chickens yet, baby. Don't you be starting a fight. I haven't even come. I just got dressed. So Bain Hadad, do you think he backs off? No, he's got his eye on what's pleasant in the eyes of the king. He says, I wanted him coming after. He says, okay, come on. We beat you once in the valley. Now you want to fight us in the hills? We'll fight you there too. So then the Bible says that King Ahab got his kids together. First Kings chapter 20. You still with me? We'll try to get through most of the chapter. I'm trying to give you the, the snippets there. He says in First Kings chapter 20, he says in verse 25, And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for ho chariot, then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Apec to fight against Israel. Notice verse 27. Why are those genealogies important? Why is keeping your family together? And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before like them, like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. And the Bible says that King Hadad was once again defeated. And I wonder how many men here this morning, under the sound of my voice, say, man, the battle's too great. Keeping my family together is just challenging. I tell you, as pastors, if we're having a hard time keeping our children in the faith and keeping them to serving God and keeping them from temptation, I could just imagine the church. 
And there's been hell unleashed on the church and on our children like never before. And you are up against the fight for an enemy that is coveting, coveting what is pleasant in your eyes. So King Ahab is, see, he hasn't got a taste of this treatment yet. So he's there thinking, oh my God, how am I going to fight this battle? How am I going to overcome this enemy? Who am I going to get to go fight against them? And he had family. He had children. He didn't have to worry. Like Naboth didn't have no one to stand up for his defenses. So the Bible says that the prophet came and visited Ahab. He says, how will I fight against this vast army? He says, do you see this vast army? The prophet said to him, oh, thank God for the prophet. How many of you guys know the prophet brought an encouraging word to him? He wanted to know, how am I going to overcome this? How am I going to keep my wife and children from this guy who's coming after them? And here's the title of my message. King Ahab's, he's, he's feeling discouraged. He's feeling defeated. The enemy's knocking at the door. And he says, I'm coming for your wives and I'm coming for your children. I'm coming for your possession. And he could just hear the knock of the enemy. You know, uh, they didn't have battering horns at that time. They, so they didn't have any watchmen. But the, ben Hadad sending his messengers. His messengers are directly going to the king and they're getting closer and closer. And Ben Ahab, follow me now. Ben, uh, King Ahab, see, what am I going to do? Who's, who am I going to send to fight? this guy and then the prophet says so Ahab said suddenly a prophet approached Ahab verse 13 king of Israel saying thus says the Lord have you seen all this great multitude notice the man look at this multitude this big army Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you will. The title of my message is, you will. See, it's always who will lead. Who will lead the next generation? Who will lead into the, to the battle? The Bible says that we do not fight against flesh and blood. Who will lead the battle? And, and, and King Ahab's thinking, oh my God, who's going to lead this, this battle? Who's going to go up against this troop? And the prophet says, you will. Turn to your neighbor and says, you will. You will lead the next generation. You will lead. You will be the first one that will answer the call to fight against this enemy. But who will do this, asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The junior officers under the providential commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, he asked. And the prophet answered, you will. You will. How many of you men can say, you know, I'll lead first. I'll fight the spiritual warfare first. See, it's one thing to have our wives fight the spiritual warfare. But the men, we must fight our spiritual warfare. Some of our wives, we want subservient, obedient husband. We're not all perfect. But how many of you guys know that every one of us needs to restore the fight for our families? 
Every day, you don't know how many nights and how many days I got to stir in my spirit the fight for my family, the fight for my children, the fight for my wife. Oh, yeah. The enemy will come beholding that which is most precious to you. It says, I want it. But you got to tell the enemy, you cannot have it. And I will lead the charge. How many battle fighters do we have here this morning? I know you could have done a better job preaching this message. I love that leader, Nehemiah. The Bible says that Nehemiah heard the, the cry of the city. The walls were falling down. And the Bible says that Nehemiah says, And I looked, and I rose up, and I said to the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of them, Remember the Lord, notice which is terrible, and fight for your brethren, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, and fight for your wives, and fight for your household. Let me tell you, men of God, fight for your children, fight for your homes, fight for your wife. Man, it's a fight. As my wife gets older and older, she gets finer and finer. Come on, t- come on. Woo. You know, the other day she, the other day she said something to me, and it offended me. She's trying to pluck nose hairs out of my nose. You know, I thought, man, she should just leave him there because then no one will look at me. They'll be like, wow, he's got hair. Really. Oh. But let me tell you, in all seriousness. What's pleasant in your eyes? And I wonder, do we go to work and do we go about our lives and say, my children are pleasant in my eyes. My wife is still pleasant in my eyes. My family, my ministry, my calling is still pleasant in my eyes. And there's bullies out there saying, we want your gold. We want your silver. I wish you guys wouldn't be so quiet. I don't know why God gives me these messages. Says, Who did you listen to? I didn't listen to nobody. To Jesus. I listen to pastors. Sometimes I'm thinking people are weary and they need a word from God. Men have their eyes somewhere else. And women have their eyes somewhere else. And our children have our eyes somewhere else. And this morning, I said, put your eyes back on the one who beheld you. I've been distracted as a, as a pastor. Taking my eyes off of the path and off the chart of God. And what we need in this last day are sentinelas. You know what a sentinela is? A sentinela is a watchman, a watcher on the wall, a sentinel who's looking for the enemy. I was ministering to some pastors from Mexico and one from Chile on, on, on Facebook or Zoom. They, they wanted me to, to participate with them, so I joined them. And I, and I shared that espantapajaro message with them. And it made, it made sense to them because a lot of them plant vineyards and harvest corn. And then one of the pastors gave me an illustration 
that I want to close this story with. Because how many of you guys thinking, who will fight the battle? You can't, we can't rely on other people to lead the battle for our homes. We got to fight the battle for ourselves. And in Roman Legion history, those of you guys that have studied the art of war, read books on the art of war, the Romans had battle formations. You guys have seen the movies, right? Men fighting with spears and shields, going out with helmets. But there was a, a, a Roman formation, a fight, that was both defensive and offensive. The, the formations and the, 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 the troop would, would line up in what they would call a, fell, a phalanx formation. You've seen the troops, right? Shoulder to shoulder, spear to spear, and all their swords and their spears facing in one direction. Now the Romans uh, developed this formation during the chameleon era. The, the chameleon term of warfare or formation comes from a man by the name of Marcus Furius Camellius, or Marcus who, who, who said, well, we're being defeated by the enemy because when we go out to battle, everybody's scattered. So, so they begin to, 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 form, to, to develop formations, battle formations, and the men would line up shoulder to shoulder, and you've seen them. You've seen them in the movies, and you've seen these men following step by step, going in formation, one, one army against the other. And, and there was usually different fronts. The first front, the first formation of the Roman soldiers was known as the Hastati. They were the ones that were first in the battle line. They were the ones that would take the first hits from the enemy. And then the second formation of, of troops would be the principes or the second in formation. But the wealthiest and the most equipped, those that could afford the best of the best equipment, were called the triadi. And they were the third on the formation of the battle line. When the first formation and the second formation were defeated and they could not overcome the victory, overcome the battle, the Roman soldiers would say, it has come to the triadi. In other words, the triadi has been called to battle formation because those two formations couldn't win. And so when it has come to the triadi, the triadi would say, hey, we're up next. And the triadi had a song, and it was victory, 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 victory. They didn't know defeat. When you were losing the battle and your first formation was taken out, the other troops would fall back in formation and the triadi would step forward because the triadi couldn't lose a battle. <laughs> and you know why they fought in Fallenex formation? Fallenex formation? It's because they realized that if we fight together, if we're shoulder to shoulder, we're not scattered. We're not fighting each other, but we're fighting all the same enemy. And in, in Latin, when they, would, when they would say it's come to the triari, the Latin word is res ad triaris veni. We have it up on the screen. Now they're good back there. 
When, when, the, when the first and second formation was losing the battle, they would say, res a triados venid. In other words, it's come to the triaris. In other words, they were the most wealthiest and they were the most equipped and the most knowledgeable of the battlefield and they knew no defeat. And this is what God told me to do. We don't have a triadi no more. But he has you. So I knocked it. Most of the words. And what was it, guys? Arti. It's you. Who will fight this enemy? It's you. It's come to you. The war has come to your home. The battle has come to your home. The battle has come to our church. And I answer, Arti, you will. Who will lead the charge? You will. Arti, Arti. I will fight for my family. I will fight for my marriage. I will fight for my children. I will fight for my ministry. You know what else the Triadi did when they went in battle formation? They would put feathers on the top of their helmets to increase their stature. And King Ahab is finding himself defeated. He don't know what to do. But a prophet came to him. I just want to read it in Spanish. The prophet Elijah came to him and says, Mientras tanto, un profeta se presentó. Some of us would have lost the home, lost our family, and lost our ministry unless a prophet had showed up. And a profeta se presentó ante Jacob. Así dice el Señor. Ves el enorme ejército. Hoy lo entregaré a tus manos. Y entonces sabrías que yo soy el Salvador, tu Señor. Por medio de ti lo hará. Notice God is saying, it's by you, it's through you that I'll give you the victory. And then he says, por medio de ti lo hará. Ahab asked him, ¿Y quién iniciará la batalla? ¿O quién iniciará? Who's going to initiate the battle? And the prophet tells him, Tú mismo. A ti. A ti. Stand up, man. A ti. Tú mismo. Tú mismo. And this is what God said told me to tell the men, you will win the battle yourself or you will lose the battle yourself. Ardid, tu mismo. Happy Father's Day. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for a steering in our hearts of our men. Lord, I know that men are weary. Lord, I know that men, Lord God, feel discouraged. But we thank you, God, that you're the great encourager. 
I thank you, God, that you are the one who speaks to us. You are the one who brought us here this morning. And so, Lord God, it is by you that we will wage this war against the enemy. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would anoint my brothers. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit. Fill them, Lord God, with your spirit of wisdom and power and might because it dwells in us. And Lord God, we don't have a triari to fight, but we have ourselves. And most importantly, we have the spirit of the living God, the Jehovah God living inside of us. And by him and through him, we will wage war against the enemy. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Let me read this verse over the men. When you feel like you're about ready to give in, ready to give up, and you feel like Bain Haddad is just coming to bully you around, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now this is prophetic about Jesus. But the spirit of Jesus rests on us. And the Bible says in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Pray that over you right now. The spirit of the Lord rests on me. The spirit of wisdom rests on me. Say it, man. The spirit of wisdom rests on me. The spirit of understanding rests on me. The spirit of counsel rests on me. The spirit of might rests on me. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord rests on me. Rest on me. Rest on me. In Jesus' name. If there were ever a time that we needed to fight for our family and stand for our family, it is now. I'm just being obedient, just delivering it as I received it. How many of you guys feel like there's been a Ben Hadad harassing your home and your family? Maybe even a Jezebel. See, Ahab didn't have the guts to go and take Naboth's property, but his wife did. And God says, You want to play that game? Let's see when I send an army knocking on your door to take what's valuable to you. See how you like it. Preservation of our families and our ministry. And not for preservation's sake. Because sometimes we want to preserve, preserve, preserve. And God says, will you just trust me to keep you? Will you just trust me to keep you? If you're a man here this morning, you're a father, maybe a father-to-be, and God spoke to you this morning. This, just be obedient to God. There's an anointing here for our men. We had to admit that we're weary. We don't always feel like the warrior type. Sometimes we're wearied warriors. You ever heard of wounded warriors? Some of you guys got battle scars. We got battle scars as pastors, as men. And, you know, we, 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 we like to show, you know, our strength. But some of us have had wounds. Some of you 
since little, since little boys, and God wants to heal those wounds today. He wants to put a, a new fight in you. So will you come forward and receive this blessing? Every one of you men that are here this morning. You know, I, I'm going to share this real quick. I didn't have many moments with my dad. You know, I don't, I don't have memories of going fishing or, you know, changing the oil with my dad or learning something to do with my dad. As a matter of fact, I never even remember correcting me or, or anything like that. I had my grandfather who adopted me. But one of the most vivid things that I remember as a child, probably five or six years old, of my dad, my biological dad, who my, my children, my sons haven't even met. They've never met him physically. We lived on Escalante Street in California, Guadalupe, California. So my mom was raised as a teenager when they left Santa Fe. And I had an older sister, my only biological sister. She knew my dad's parents, and she knew my dad, and she was older than me. She would go visit them all the time. They lived around the, around the corner from my, my mom's grandparents, my mom's parents, who I was being raised with. I don't think I've ever shared this in church before. And I would go visit my grandpa Antonio and my grandma Celia, who was wheelchair-ridden. She was very light-skinned, blue-eyes, Spanish lady. And I remember just always going over there, and they were always so kind and loving to me. And I remember one day I went was a little bit unusual. It was a little bit strange. Because when I walked in, I'd seen someone I've never met before. And my grandparents, they spoke Spanish. And my, you know, my, I, want, I want to believe my first language was Spanish. And my grandmother and my grandfather asked me, ¿Sabes quién es ese hombre? And no one had ever introduced him to me. And in Spanish, I said, mi papá, how did I know? And that's the only, only thing that I remember of my dad. When I read the Bible and I read about men and they kept their genealogies. See, some of us can give birth to children and walk away from them like my dad did for me and didn't raise me and didn't give me his name. But we are going to be men who keep and they kept their genealogies. They kept their families. They kept their church together. That's what I want. Man, this has been a long sermon, long message. Let's raise your hand. And Lord, we know you are our Father.